From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn how the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective is working to preserve stories from the community. The joy that I find in doing this work is to know that there are scattered stories across our city, and it's the job of me as a historian and the students that I work with to to accumulate the stories, to preserve those stories, and then most importantly, to share those stories. Then we'll hear from the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area. Plus, we'll look at a new study that shows a surprising trend among millennials. Over half of our millennials now have a chronic disease or are developing a chronic disease. So the young and invincible mantra was gone, and now we have a population that really is now going to start to actively engage uh, the healthcare system All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow marks the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. WUWM will be celebrating the cultural diversity of the Latinx and Hispanic community in Milwaukee all month long. The history and documentation of Latinx people in Wisconsin hasn't always been complete. But a group called the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective is trying to change that by documenting and uplifting Latinx history. Founding members Tess Arenas and Sergio Gonzalez are collaborating with others to collect the stories of Latinx Wisconsinites. One historical figure you may have heard of is Rafael Baez. He's the first Latinx person recorded to have lived in Milwaukee. Lake Effect's Mallory Chang looks into Baez's story and the early history of Latinx people here in Milwaukee. Outside of Bruce Guadalupe Community School in Walker's Point, there's a mural that shows the history of Latinx Milwaukeeans. If you look closely in the first panel, you'll see Rafael Baez. He was the first recorded Latinx Milwaukeean and is a significant part of our city's history. I spoke with a group of Wisconsin Latinx historians. First, we'll hear from Sergio Gonzalez, an assistant professor of Latinx studies at Marquette University. He helps give a rundown of who Baez was. Rafael Baez was born in Puebla, Mexico in the 1860s. And uh, from a young age, he was was a bit of a a prodigy when it came to music. And there was an opera company from the United States that was doing a tour of Mexico, which was pretty common in the 19th century. And they were looking for some local talent to come and play with them. And people kept saying his name, so he did. And when they finished their tour in Mexico, they invited to come back to the United States with them. Uh, And he did a tour through the country. And for some reason that historians have never been able to figure out, when he decided to settle down, he didn't go back to Mexico. He decided to stay here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Baez went on to marry fellow musician Mary Schoen, a German immigrant in 1889. He stayed in Milwaukee for the rest of his life until his death in 1931. But he started off by being a choir director and an organist for some of the biggest churches and synagogues in the city of Milwaukee. And then his life really picked up from there, and he had a lot of different occupations after that. He became uh, a music tutor for some of the city's kind of elites, so they would send their, their kids to go and learn how to play specifically piano, but also violin, which was his favorite instrument. He became a composer, and he actually published a few pieces. He became kind of a bit player in local politics, a member of the Democratic Party. And and then, you know, really interesting to me as a professor at Marquette University, he became Marquette University's first documented Mexican and Latinx professor. He became a, a professor of music and theory at the turn of the century.
Rafael Baez is the first documented person, right? It's the first person we can kind of identify in the archives and the sources. But of course, we would imagine that there were people who came before him either directly from Mexico or kind of migrated from different parts of the Southwest. It's just that historically, it's been very difficult to find those traces in the kind of established archives, institutional records and, and papers. Um, and so we could assume that there are people who came before him as well. After Rafael Valles, uh, there's kind of a bit of a lull in the number of people coming from Latin America to Wisconsin. And it's not until the 1920s that we start to see a large influx of people arriving from Latin American countries. And the big reason, there's a couple of big reasons. One is because the United States Congress uh, functionally shuts off immigration from Europe, which means that all of those big companies in Milwaukee that depended on the cheap and controllable labor of European immigrants now needed to find new sources of, of workers. And so they looked off into Mexico, which was not included in, in those, those quotas that had cut off immigration in the 1920s. And so companies like the Pfister and Vogel Tannery and Harnish Fager and other factories and foundries in the cities began to recruit uh, specifically young Mexican men up to Milwaukee to work in you know, low-paying, back-breaking, really kind of rough positions. And these Mexican men would come up, and when they found that there were good opportunities, they would send word back home and they would bring their families up. And so beginning in the 1920s, you start to see the development of a small, what we call a colonia, a little colony on the south side of Milwaukee, right around those factories and foundries. That story really develops throughout the 20th century to become a much more diverse uh, and wide ranging story. In the 1940s and 1950s, we can look out into the agricultural field outside of Milwaukee, where Texas Mexican workers, known as Tejanos, begin to arrive in the state in large numbers. In the 1950s, about 15,000 Tejanos would come to the state every single year to work in anything and everything you can imagine being picked in Wisconsin's agricultural fields. In the 1950s, we have Puerto Rican migrant workers arriving directly from the island and from other cities like Chicago to come and work in our factories and foundries. The 1960s, Cuban refugees arriving, many of them coming from Miami when the city becomes kind of too overpacked with people, not enough economic opportunities, and they come to Milwaukee looking for better lives. In the 1980s, you have Central Americans often arriving as refugees from places like El Salvador and Guatemala, looking for a space of safe harbor, and uh, Milwaukee religious organizations help them find it here. And that story kind of develops and develops. And so the thing that, that's really interesting about Milwaukee is that Milwaukee has really almost always had a very diverse Latinx population. It's never been just one. It's not been Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban. It's always been kind of this, this wide kaleidoscope of different peoples. Gonzalez is a founding member of the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective, a group of scholars and community researchers in communities across the state that are documenting Wisconsin Latinx history and are committed to the stewardship of Latinx archival collections. The collective has worked to document Latinx history in partnership with UW-Madison, the Wisconsin History Collective, and Chicana Boromiudasa Digital Memory Collective. And so I've been really proud and fortunate to work with this growing group of historians across our state who have all been brought under this kind of central goal, which is to re-envision Wisconsin history as one that is inclusive of the Latinx story, or Latinx stories in the plural. We're working under the direction of, I think, one of the greatest uh, public scholars that we have working in Wisconsin, Dr. Tess Arenas, who did really tireless work at UW-Madison and UW-System for years and has now given up her retirement to really bring us all together and to gather the resources to preserve these stories. Tess Arenas is the founder and the lead of the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective. She is also known for her work at the Somos Latinas History Project, a project that documents the significant 
and largely hidden contributions of Latinas in Wisconsin. The collective was founded in January of 2020, and it's an offshoot of my work for documenting Latina activists over the age of 50, which is known as the Somos Latina Digital History Collection. I take an appreciative inquiry approach to these interviews. And these are not journalistic exposés where we're trying to dig up the dirt on an individual's life. We're trying to set the historical record straight about what Latinx people bring to a community and bring to our state. And we approach our oral history interviews from that perspective. What have you done? What would you like to share? What words of wisdoms do you have for others who want to do similar things? And by educating others about our contributions and our possibilities, we can remove barriers, attitudinal barriers, and behavioral barriers to people, Latinx people flourishing in this state. Gonzalez credits the work of local Latinx public historians for spearheading the documentation of the Wisconsin Latinx community. The work of kind of documenting this history has been a long and arduous process, and it's one that I am very thankful to be a part of, but there have been many people who came before me who have been doing this work either whether it was families in the 1920s and 30s who were preserving their own families' histories, kind of leaving those trails for hist future historians to find, or beginning in the 1970s and 80s, public historians who perhaps didn't have official positions at universities and they weren't classically trained as historians with PhDs, but they had a real passion for finding this history and making sure that it was a part of our, our state's register. Our history is of no value unless our children know about it. That's Tess Arenas again from the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective. These young people come up, they understand the integral part Latinx play in the state economy, the culture, morals, and values of the state. My dream is that the materials that we, our collective members produce are used in educational settings from K-12 to post-secondary. We're looking at traveling exhibits uh, for schools and museums and local history organizations and curriculum. Our goal is to continually uh, share what's been developed across the state. History is a, is a question of narratives, and it's a question of, of power and a question of actors. And so we have to think about who has historically had the opportunity to have their voice included in the narratives that we tell each other and the way in which those narratives often color things beyond just the history books that we write and the stories we tell around the dinner table, but they have real political and, and economic ramifications. And so, but I really hope that the work we're doing um, is going to have large ramifications beyond just an academic endeavor. For me, the joy that I find in doing this work is, is to know that there are scattered stories across our city. And it's the job of me as a historian and the students that I work with and all the public historians who have been doing this work for, for decades to, to accumulate those stories, to preserve those stories, and then most importantly, to share those stories with the rest of Wisconsin so that Wisconsinites across the state understand that Latinx history is Wisconsin history and that if we don't understand Latinx history, we can't understand the story of our state.
Cortez Arenas is the founder and lead of the Wisconsin Latinx History Collective. Sergio Gonzalez is an assistant professor of Latinx studies at Marquette University. They spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang in 2021. The holiest days in Judaism happen this September. They're called the High Holidays, and they include the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement, or Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. One rabbi leading her congregation through these days is Jessica Boralski. She's the new senior rabbi at Reformed Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jeshurun Synagogue in River Hills. She's the first female senior rabbi in a reform or conservative synagogue in the metro Milwaukee area. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with her about that distinction. But first, Boralski shared the biggest lesson she took away from being treated for breast cancer a few years ago. I think the biggest thing that I learned was how to accept help, which is not easy for a lot of people, self-included, because we all like to think we can do it ourselves. And it taught me that it's not only okay to say yes when people want to help, but it is so much better for everybody. I had one friend who I couldn't drive myself. I could drive myself to chemotherapy, but I couldn't drive myself home um, because I was so drowsy from all of the medication. And so I had somebody drive me every week and Sometimes it was my husband and sometimes it was a friend. And I had one friend I called to ask if there was any chance she could drive me on that particular week. And she drove half an hour from her house to mine to pick me up in the morning, drove me 25 minutes out to the hospital, sat there with me for the four hours that I was getting my chemotherapy infusion drove me home the 25 minutes back to my house and then was about to head the 30 minutes back to her house, having really given me her entire day. And I looked at her when we got into my driveway and I said, thank you so much for giving me this entire day and for helping me and making this doable. And she looked at me and she said, seriously, thank you. Since I heard you were sick, I have wanted to do, I have just wanted to help. And I'm so grateful that I was able to do this and that you asked me. So thank you for finding me a way that I could help. And I was just blown away by that. And it really changed my perspective in a lot of ways and reminded me that community is not just about giving a helping hand, but it's also about accepting a helping hand. Um, And that's been a really important lesson for me. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm sure you've kind of incorporated it as you've stepped into the role of senior rabbi at Emmanuel. I wanted to mention Shir Chadash is a Reconstructionist synagogue in Milwaukee, and they have had women rabbis. But I think for the Reform and Conservative synagogues, this is a first. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm honored to be that first. Um, and it's, you know, the, uh, several of the congregations have had assistant rabbis and cantors who are women. Um, but I'm the first to lead the congregation as their 
as their rabbi or senior rabbi, and I'm honored. And it it both it means a lot to me personally. I think it means a lot to Milwaukee and and to the Jewish people to see that example. Um, you know, we we hear a lot about you can't be what you can't see. In in the more conservative or orthodox streams of Judaism, I mean, just to talk about the role of women in general. Not only can a woman not be rabbi, a rabbi in some of these streams, but they can't read from the Torah. They have to sit in the women's section of the synagogue with a divider called a mechitza. A man can't even listen to them sing. How does this, like, does this make you think about those who've paved the way for you to be a rabbi? The, the, of course, I think that the egalitarianism of liberal Judaism obviously means a lot to me because it, it's what, first of all, it's what I grew up with. I grew up in a fully egalitarian congregation where anything that men could do, everybody was welcome to do. There really wasn't a separation or a, any way to distinguish between men and women or anything like that. Um, and that's not true of all parts of Judaism or all congregations. And so I certainly respect it. It's a different, it's a, it's a different sort of separate tradition. And I greatly respect people who practice in that way. And it's simply not the way that I was raised. And I love that things are not off limits to me or to anybody else that there's just as much Judaism for me as a woman as there is for anybody else. So according to a 2020 Pew Research Center survey, only one-fifth of Jews nationwide attend services at a synagogue, temple, or other small Jewish group at least once a month. The rest attend services a few times a year or less. What do you see as the challenges to getting Milwaukee Jews and, frankly, Jews around the country connected with their synagogues? I think one thing that that study skews is by measuring affiliation or participation rates only by looking at religious services. I think one of the things that we know is that some people connect to Judaism through services, no question. And some people connect to Judaism through working through like um, social action, social justice work, you know, working together as a community to make our world better. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an amazing way to connect and practice Judaism. And some people connect to Judaism by studying. We have lots of adult education classes, for example, uh, where people come together and learn and study together. And some of those are people who don't come to services on a regular basis, and that's okay. It's another fantastic way to connect to Judaism. And some people connect socially, where maybe they don't go to services and they don't study, and that's okay, and they come because they want to be part of the Brotherhood or the Women of Emmanuel or another social group um, or whatever congregation they're at. They find their social group and they connect to Judaism through other Jews and other people who are affiliated with the congregation. And that's wonderful also. Community looks so many different ways, and it should. We're not all the same. And so while I do think it gives us, um, that study gives us the, 
you know, reminder that we need to continue reaching out to lots of different people. I also think it's missing the people who are connected in all the other ways um, that they can connect and all of the other things that synagogues offer in addition to services. And is that a way to also tap into younger generations? I guess that same research study also showed that younger Jews are much more likely than older generations to identify as cultural but not religious. Or on the flip side, this was kind of interesting, it's still a small fraction, but there's more younger Jews identifying with orthodoxy than older Jews identify with orthodoxy. So reform and conservative identities in the middle are getting smaller. So what do you see as the challenges to sort of getting those younger Jews connected to this sort of more mainstream Jewish practice? I think it's it's definitely a challenge to get people of all ages to connect. And I think a lot of it is really the idea of meeting people where they are. And some of that is physically where they are. So going out and having a service in a different location that's not in the synagogue, that's maybe downtown, since our synagogues are almost all in the suburbs. Um, in Milwaukee, I think, you know, or, or other events, we've, you know, like a, a meetup in a park for families with young children where the parents can sit and talk and the kids can go play on the playground and still have that Jewish connection. Maybe we do the Shabbat blessings and then let the kids play and the parents hang out and talk, maybe a little bit of study, maybe not. Maybe it's talking about how Judaism, what, what advice and wisdom Judaism can give us about the life stages that we're in right now, or about life circumstances or the state of the world, because Judaism's been around a really long time and has some truly remarkable wisdom and, and amazing things to tell us and teach us that even though our very ancient words are often incredibly relevant to what we're doing now. Um, and so I do think it's a great reminder and challenge to us to get out of our buildings and to meet people where they are and to also just have those conversations one-on-one, small group conversations about what folks are looking for because the Judaism of my parents and grandparents doesn't look the same and isn't going to look the same as the Judaism of my eventual or my children and my eventual one day, hopefully grandchildren, not for a long time, um, right? That the generations constantly get to reinvent what Judaism and Jewish practice look like. And that's why we're still here is because also the, Jude- the Jewish practice of my parents and my grandparents also didn't look like the Jewish practices of their parents and grandparents because it is constantly evolving and changing. And that's what makes it ever relevant and new. And so I think we need to continue to reach out to younger generations and find out what they're curious about. If they want to be cultural Jews, great. What does that mean to them? How do they define that? And are they looking for more than that? And if not, how can we be ready for when they are or when their children are? Um, Because people often, it, it cycles and people eventually come back even if they're not interested today. Well, Rabbi Jessica Borowski, Chag Sameach, Happy New Year. 
Chag Sameach. Thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for having me. Rabbi Jessica Boralski is the new senior rabbi at Reform Congregation Emmanuel B'nai Jishroom. She spoke with WUWN's Mayan Silver. Tomorrow at sundown starts the Jewish New Year or Rosh Hashanah. It's the beginning of the year 5784 in the Jewish calendar. Milwaukee is home to one of the largest communities of Myanmar refugees in the U.S. Later in the show, we'll explore what one local supermarket is bringing to the community. But first, we'll explore the declining health of millennials and what that means for the healthcare system. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Although they only range in age from 27 to 42 years old, millennials are experiencing chronic health conditions at a significant rate. A new study from the Health Action Council shows that millennials exceed older generations in chronic conditions, making them more dependent on the healthcare system compared to other age groups. Medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, back disorders, and particularly behavioral health disorders in the millennial population contribute to a higher burden on the healthcare system. Patty Starr and Craig Kurzweil co-authored an article that explains this shift and some solutions to address it. They join me to share more of the findings, and Kurzweil begins by explaining the key factors that contribute to millennials using the healthcare system at higher rates. Patty Starr and Craig Kurzweil, welcome to Lake Effect. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having us. Yes. So millennials are now the dominant generation covered in employer health plans. So before we get into the details of this new study, let's just go over the basics about the millennial population. Can you describe the subjects of the study? So from an analytic perspective, uh, in partnership with Patty and the Health Action Council, we leverage um, the membership that's part of the Health Action Council to do a study across the population. This is now, we've done uh, white papers over the last couple of years, and by using that large data set, we're able to do these kinds of interesting studies into subpopulations that sometimes you wouldn't have enough data to focus in on. But for Health Action Council, we have more than enough data to be able to jump into the subpopulations of different generations, and specifically the millennials. So typically, the millennials are going to be that population that is um, turning 42 this year would be the oldest uh, end of the, the millennial generation. The millennials and their children are experiencing chronic health conditions and are utilizing medical resources at unexpectedly higher rates than older generations. So what factors do you think are widely contributing to this? What we see within the millennial population is not necessarily that there's a higher prevalence of those types of chronic disease conditions, but it's more around uh, with the millennials and their families how they utilize care. So as they start to um, enter into their 40s, and we see that the millennials are getting uh, everything that comes with turning 40, hypertension, diabetes, high blood pressure, things like that within the millennial generation, the fact that they typically access the healthcare system through kind of quick care, so using the ER, urgent care, and virtual care, instead of using a brick and mortar sort of PCP quarterback model, um, has led to many of those chronic diseases costing much more uh, within the millennial population. So treating your diabetes, for example, through an emergency room is a really expensive way to treat a chronic disease. 
We're also doing a comparison between employer policies over the last 30 years or 40 years now and some of the impact that it has on this generation, whether it was an employer changing their sick time or their PTO schedule or their vacation schedules. We went through a transition when the millennial generation was actually being brought up and their parents actually had to change their behavior on how their kids received care and how fast their kids received care from the healthcare system in order for daycare to kick in or for them to go back to school. And we're actually starting to see in this population how some of those changes, although positive for the employer on the short-term basis, may negatively impact the employer now through different usage patterns. And those patterns are now being passed down to the next generation, which are the children of the millennials. I'm not sure if anyone's heard stories of millennials when their kids get are not feeling well, they are going, well, the doctor's on your phone, just call the doctor on your phone because they're used to virtual care now. And they're going, well, we can just go to the doctor. So there's a different level of access and availability thought of in this population, and therefore they're utilizing it differently as well. Some both positive and some negative. It's often the subject matter of many memes out there that millennials are casually living through multiple waves of, you know, unprecedented times, right? But all jokes aside, this does have an impact on our health, both physical and mental. So where do you see this reflected in the data of what areas of health millennials are most utilizing or seeking care for? Well, definitely, if you look through the data on the millennial population, the one area that is very different from past generations is behavioral health itself. So some of that is obviously impacted by the pandemic and lockdowns and all of the stress over the last few years is definitely important to, uh, to think about. But I would also say, in general, the millennial population had high prevalence of behavioral health issues before COVID. And really, it's more uh, an indication of more millennials and, and the millennials starting to dominate the workforce has led to behavioral health being more more popular. And not that other generations aren't struggling with behavioral health issues, but the millennial generation is really the first that's coming through with which is a completely different degree of stigma attached to behavioral health concerns. So not that the not that the issue wasn't there within that generation, but they're much more willing uh, to be treated for those types of conditions. You mentioned behavioral health utilization is up to 35% for millennials and their children. So Let's get into some of the other dominant health conditions that millennials are experiencing that you found in this study. Yeah, so again, analytically, as you look at the millennial population, uh, typically when you think about, when I think about millennials, you think young, healthy, invincible populations. But uh, to be clear, um, you, we blinked during the pandemic and that has completely changed. Uh, the millennials are turning 40, they are 40, and getting, again, everything that comes with turning 40 with high blood pressure and diabetes and things like that. So. Um, conditions that we hadn't talked about within that generation are now becoming much, much more popular. Now, chronic disease. Over half of our millennials now have a chronic disease or are developing a chronic disease. So the young and invincible mantra is, is gone. And now we have a population that really is now going to start to actively engage uh, the healthcare system. And the real challenge is how do they engage the healthcare system? Now that they have chronic disease, it, it's no longer okay to leverage you know, the ER and things like that to treat your conditions, we truly need to manage the chronic disease. And that means becoming compliant and engaged and part of the healthcare journey. And typically we do that through a PCP, 
if we if they are going to access the healthcare system through virtual care, we just need to make sure that virtual care moves from just treating cough and cold and things like that to how do you help this generation treat their chronic disease? That's a, a, going to be a big challenge. Yeah, things like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, back disorders, osteoarthritis, these are just some of the things that have a high percentage prevalence in the study. And as you mentioned, it reflects how they utilize the care and what the priorities of care are for the millennials. But this study also examines how these trends impact health spending, not just on the individual level, but employers. So, Patty, what do you see as some key solutions to better serve this population? So from an employer perspective, I really believe that we need to continue to manage those individuals that are of high risk. But I also think we need to move our line of sight up in the continuum and really look at those individuals who are healthy or just developing some light medical risk and help them maintain where they're at, their health. It's really important that employers implement and promote disease prevention and lifestyle modification programs. In addition to that, I think it's very important that employers help educate employees on where to obtain healthcare, that it's not always the quickest place you want to go. Maybe you actually want a healthcare relationship instead of being transient with your healthcare. But making sure you have a relationship and you know, based on the symptoms you're experiencing, where an appropriate place to go is. Along with that, beyond teaching our employees what to do, but helping support them and making really good family decisions around healthcare. What's good for a spouse or a significant other? What's good for the children that they're around so that those individuals start to adopt good behaviors around the healthcare system as well? One aspect I see in this study is that maybe millennials are motivated to challenge the way the current healthcare system works. You know, we can't expect the systems that were best utilized by, say, baby boomers or Gen X populations to fit the different needs of the population that are today. So how can the results of this report and continuing to build upon this data potentially help shape any system changes to help lessen the cost burden for everybody? Yeah, and I I think that's a key piece to think about. It's not just understanding that there's some barriers and some challenges within the generation. It's what do we learn from that? And, and a lot of what happened during the pandemic has really put us in a, in a in actually a, a better spot within with the millennial generation. So the rapid advancement of telehealth and virtual care was critical. If that hadn't happened, we'd be really in even in a more challenging position uh, to meet the needs of millennials. And it's it's less around understanding the barriers, but, under, but more about how do we meet these members where they're at. This is how they use care. This is how they've been trained to use care. This is what they're accustomed to. Um, and now that they are the dominant workforce, how do we adjust? How does everyone adjust to meet the unique needs of this population and guide them towards better health and, and lower full cost of care? I would also say that it's a great opportunity for the system to look at the experience it provides to the end consumer, that millennials are used to a first class level of experience, whether they're looking at Amazon or some of the other types of services that they traditionally buy at grocery stores, and how does healthcare mimic and or learn from some of those other industries on the delivery of care to provide that level of experience. 
Both of you come at this study with different perspectives. I'm just curious, what were your main takeaways individually or a stat that most stood out to you? I can I speak to the data. It, when you look at what's happening in the millennial population, two things kind of jumped out. One is that uh, we don't typically think of chronic disease in that population. So seeing that overtaking that population was really interesting. And the cost of those chronic diseases was unexpected. Um, and again, driven by where people are utilizing care. The other piece, uh, and Patty kind of mentioned this earlier, the ripple effect that this uh, utilization pattern has in their kids, that it's not just a study of just the millennials, but the millennials and the ripple effect within their children. is It's interesting how that learned behavior kind of moves from generation to generation along the continuum as well. So this isn't gonna be a, a one hit wonder where, we, where it's just the millennials, but it's going to be a longer term issue as their, their kids start to enter the health, healthcare system as well. I mean, ditto what Craig shared. I think we were both surprised at the amount of disease state that was entering earlier in someone's life expectancy coming in at that 30s and 40s. And to also see that mirrored into their children, I think was significantly eye-opening. From an employer's perspective, it gives insight into our future workforces and our current workforces and some of the things we might have to start adjusting and modifying for earlier than what we've done in the past. Because we're used to a workforce that gets sicker, usually in their 50s. And now all of a sudden they're getting ill earlier in their 40s. So that has a long-term impact on the business model that from an employer's perspective, we have to evaluate. I think from an employer's perspective also though, it's a great opportunity for us to take a step back and actually look at policies and decisions we're making today and go, what are we trying to accomplish today? And how can we actually model out what the impact will be in 20 or 30 years on the next generation of employees that we're gonna be hiring? Because what may seem really positive today and resolving maybe a problem we're having in our processes may actually cause further healthcare burdens in the future, which we definitely don't want to do. If anything, we want to try to eliminate burdens from the healthcare system starting today, but make decisions that will continue that impact on a long-term basis. Well, Patty and Craig, thank you both so much for joining me today to break down some of this data. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for your time. Patty Starr is the president and CEO of the Health Action Council, and Craig Kurzweil is the vice president of the United Healthcare Center for Advanced Analytics. You can find a link to the study, Millennials and Their Children, Significant Health Findings, at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 10 minutes, we'll bring you a new Sounds Like Milwaukee with a special guest whose voice you may recognize. But first, we'll head to Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's south side and learn what it means for Myanmar refugees living in the city. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee has become home to a growing community of refugees from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Armed conflicts have been ravaging the nation for more than seven decades, often dividing people along ethnic lines. Milwaukee is thought to have the United States' largest community of Rohingya, a Muslim minority from Myanmar that's faced persecution and ongoing genocide in their home country. Other groups, like Burmese and Karen, have faced similar persecution during this time of unrest. That was the case for Tupaw's family, which fled to a Thai refugee camp before making their way to the U.S. Paw is the owner of Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's South Side, a grocery store and meeting place for people in the community. Lake Effect's Joy Powers visited her at the supermarket in the spring. Two, thank you so much for chatting mm-hmm. with me. Uh, so you said you really just started over here about two, three months ago. Yeah, I started on around March 7th, I believe, yeah, of this year. But you've lived in Milwaukee for a while now. Uh-huh, yeah, I have lived in Milwaukee since uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. Where did you move from? Originally, like uh, I was born in Thailand, refugee camp, and then I grew up there. Uh, we moved to uh, American back in 2010. The first states I was living in was Dallas, Texas, and after like, a few years, we moved to Iowa. And then during the years of 2018, I moved here. What brought you to Milwaukee specifically? Um, not really sure, just I think just um, families, yeah. It seems like there's a, a growing community here in Milwaukee. Right. Uh, has that been helpful compared to other states? You said you lived in Iowa, you, you lived uh, in... Yeah, it's pretty helpful, you know, open up a grocery store, have your own community support you. It's a, like a, a plus. Uh, and they like also want to make sure that they have what they need, what they're looking for. But yeah, I have seen a lot, lately we have a lot of Rohingya community, current community coming in, yeah. So what is, uh, for people who won't know, what is the difference between the Karen community, the the Rohingya community, the Burmese community? Oh, okay, yeah. So, like, we have, like, I'm not really sure myself. Like, (laughs) uh, I don't know the history, but we have, like, all kind of ethnic group who live in a refugee camp. So, like, my parents, uh, they originally from Burma, but due to the civil war between Burma and Karen, uh, then uh, they flee to Thailand back in, I think, 19... 95 or 1994 and I was both there in 1998 in the refugee camp so a lot of like ethnic group moved to the refugee camps due to the war they just want a little bit of freedom and stuff like that so this is a very diverse group of people I think Uh we tend to uh, lump everyone into right, one yeah. kind of mm-hmm. group but there are so many different folks yes it is yeah we have all but most of us like understand the Burmese language so we can kind of communicate with that well that's good news right <laughs> uh, when you're trying to cater to what is a very diverse group of people how do you do that with a grocery store because I'm sure everybody has slightly different preferences for what they want to eat what they right. want yeah so um, we just kind of like get feedback from customer we ask like you know whatever what kind of things they're looking for sometimes like they will come in show me a picture and they'll just keep a photo of it ask you know ask uh, where I could get those and they sometimes just bring in little by little and then yeah now, I notice you sell both clothing here and mm-hmm. food. Uh, as I'm looking at the clothing, what am I looking at? Is, is so, this? Yeah, these are, uh, that's the current flag over there. These are men traditions shirts. 
and those are women traditional um, dress, clothing, shirts. But we usually like we don't really wear wear it day to day uh, in these generations. But for like my parents and other the older generation, they do kind of wear this every day. But, like for us, we wear we wear them like during the special day, like uh, Revolutionary Days on like Sunday for going to church and stuff like that. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed, uh, so I, I live not far from here, so I've mm-hmm. come a few times, I think before you owned it as well. Right. Um, and I've noticed that recently it seems mm-hmm. like you've started doing more hot food. Right, yeah, so it's more of like uh, dates, daily to dates. We make them like daily. Those are like more of Burmese, currants, like everyday uh, like dessert things. So we have like some noodles, some um, sticky rice. Yeah, we just make kind of just a little bit of a menu. It, it seems like a nice gathering place for people. Have you found more people are coming to the store and, and staying and sitting down and, you know, having a space? Yeah, so like it's more kind of, it's a grocery store, but it's also like family, friends friendly. Like some type of people just come in next to, you know, um, have a seat waiting for whoever gonna pick them up. Sometimes they just come and have a chat. Yeah, very friendly family store, I guess. Is there anything that you would say to people who uh, are, are interested in checking out the space, interested in checking out the grocery store, uh, but may not be as familiar with the cuisine? Or, oh yeah, you know? I have a lot of like for like people from American and whoever, like they will come and then I'll kind of like show them around if they want. And sometimes they're looking for a specific product. They'll just show me a picture and they will walk with. I will walk them through. So yeah. Uh, I think communication is a big key if you want to like kind of get into like more with the diversity. So yeah, I think communications, being friendly, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Sure. Thank you. Tupaz, the owner of Karen Supermarket at 27th and National on Milwaukee South Side. She spoke with Lake Effects Joy Powers. out today's show, we bring you our new series, Sounds Like Milwaukee, where we ask our listeners to share their favorite sounds in the city and why they love them. Sounds that make you think or dream or that you just connect to in some way. So far, we've heard about fish tanks and waterfalls, but today, WUWM's Mayan Silver chats with a guest whose voice you may recognize. This is WUWM's Mayan Silver. Today's Sounds Like Milwaukee episode brings in a special guest. My name is Rob Larry. I'm the host of All Things Considered here at 89.7 WUWM. That's Milwaukee's NPR. I also have the privilege and honor of serving as the digital producer here at the station. I love it. Okay, so you know that WWM is doing a project of our favorite sounds. Yes. And I was walking in the hallway once, bumped into you, started talking about the project, and you mentioned that you have a favorite sound. I do have a favorite sound. I think the sound that, that I find soothing is the ding from my iPhone when someone is reaching out to me when someone is texting me. Got it. It can be my lovely wife, who I, you know, have frequent communications with and always brightens my day. Or maybe it's my father, who is um, a big fan of mine, always has been, always listens to all things considered every day, and uh, might text me after a break, hey, son, that was really interesting, or I love hearing you, or I was just at the grocery store listening to you, and 
you know, those types of things. And I think the thing that really strikes me about that is that a hundred years ago, we didn't have, you know, this was not something that, that people had at their disposal. You know, it was just staying in touch with something that was, that took a lot more effort. And now with the push of a button, I could be face to face with someone on another continent. I mean, that, that is amazing. Rob says he really started to value the sound in the pandemic. It's not so much about the technology in of itself, but it's about what it, what it does. It's about staying connected, reaching out to people that you haven't heard from in a while, and making sure that we don't get too busy to tell the people that we love that we love them. Oh, I love that. So for all the people that are like, ugh, another text, or I have to go on my phone, you you just kind of want to say, you know, look, it's actually kind of a beautiful thing that we can be so connected to the people that we love so easily. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it, it's um, I had a great relationship with my mother, and she's deceased now, but one of the last things that she ended up telling me shortly before she passed away is something that's really impacted my life was when when people mean something to you, tell them. You reach out to them then. You know, we, we often don't reflect on the impact that people had in our lives until they're gone. And it was certainly impactful that she said that shortly before her life ended here on this earth. So follow Rob's lead. Get in those bleeps and bloops. Text someone that you love today. And also be thankful that we don't have to use carrier pigeons. Exactly. Carrier pigeons, you know, smoke signals, telegrams, uh, you know, those types of things. Send in your favorite sounds, and you don't even need to use a carrier pigeon. Go to wuwm.com for the instructions. My Jan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with WUWM's All Things Considered host, Rob Larry. You can find information on how to submit your favorite sound at WUWM.com. Lake Effect for today, I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Sam Woods join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reedy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarra-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday's show, we'll hear from residents in the Martin Drive neighborhood about how the neighborhood nurtures and maintains diversity and a sense of community. Plus, we'll look at the different plans being considered for I-794. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.